We have as our speaker this evening a gentleman. <clears throat> I hope to get a long list of qualifications and so on and so forth. I didn't receive these. A gentleman was program director for the Voice of America. He was educated here and abroad. He has been what you might say an in and outer that is in government service, not in AA. I give you Alex. Uh, coming before this very distinguished group and being flattered and honored to be your guest, I still feel a little bit like I did uh, four years ago when I was invited by the Jesuits to visit their seminary in Woodstock, Maryland. I accepted and suddenly found myself after dinner, not as nice as this, they have to be a little more frugal, uh, facing 238 Roman collars. Now, how in the hell should I begin? I thought so as said, dear fellow Christians. Uh, I greet you in a way tonight as dear fellow international doctors, I am an LLD by courtesy of an honorary from my alma mater, and uh, my qualifications, which Don did not enumerate, fall in the area of being an international drunk. But <laughs> let us begin at the beginning, and the beginning began rather early, quite early. Now, I have to interpolate the parenthetical remarks here and there as we go along. I was born in Archangel, Russia, which is a short drop below the Arctic Circle, and it's a hell of a place to be born, particularly in December 1918, but this was one of those circumstances in life over which I myself had no control. Uh, however, I tried to avoid the issue for some time because about three weeks late, now, uh, what uh, my father had been in our embassy in uh, Petrograd, now Leningrad, and uh, at that time was uh, with the Allied Siberian Expeditionary Force, which was holed up in Archangel, Russia, uh, surrounded by the Red Army, which had the town under shell fire. Another reason I didn't want to emerge. But that isn't the point. Uh, now, uh, what, uh, what follows is not apocryphal, but it depends who is telling the story from what point of view, but there, there, there is a certain fact to it. Uh, my nurse was uh, a sergeant uh, in the Army Medical Corps, and he had read or heard somewhere that uh, when a small child is uh, fretful, a little whiskey will calm him or her down. Now, what a sergeant in the medical corps considers a little whiskey is a matter of conjecture, but uh, according uh, to my parents, who are authorities on, on this subject, certainly, uh, 
I acted very peculiarly, or they found me in a very peculiar condition, and the doctor was called in and said, there's nothing wrong with the child except he's drunk. Uh, I, I was then two weeks old, and that, that's a pretty... Uh, that's a pretty early start. Now, uh... Uh, being a, a layman in, in this uh, this uh, a practicing layman, I might say, in the the field of alcoholism, uh, uh, I'm not going to mislead you and say something dreadful happened, like I refused to take my mother's milk and and headed for other bottles. No, uh, a long period of sobriety followed. <laughs> And uh, uh, for any one of us, as we look back on, on time, uh, 13 years of uninterrupted sobriety is pretty damn good. And uh, I did not get drunk again until I was 13, and then it was sheer uh, misfortune and advertence. I ate a large amount of uh, fresh strawberries, which had uh, been soaking in good French brandy, Rhine wine, and champagne for a great many hours. Uh, now, from there on, we, however, begin to uh, get into something different. And again, I have to interpolate a little something else. Uh, my father was a foreign service officer, a diplomat, and uh, I spent most of my childhood in Europe. And if we look back uh, on the interwar years, particularly uh, here and extrapolating the Depression, uh, there was a lot of good, there was a lot of bad. But uh, on the whole, again, extrapolating the uh, uh, Depression, uh, there was peace and there was calm. But uh, this was not the true in Europe, and it certainly was not true in Germany, where I'd spent a great deal of my time because my father was stationed there twice. And in a way, I grew up on violence. I was used to see violence. I was used to see in Berlin the Nazis and the communists fight it out, and they fought it out with bullets. Uh, I was inured by the time I was 11 or 12 to see wounded people in the street, to see people hurt, and so on. And uh, I rather enjoyed it. Uh, we'd go, we, we knew uh, as kids when the big fracas was going to happen, so we went over to Moabit, the red part of Berlin then, and, and watched uh, them storm the barricades. Uh Pardon me, but uh, uh, in the kind of life that I grew up in, I grew too fast, uh, too old, ahead of my time. And by the time I was uh, 14, I was quite sure that I was a man and that uh, I had all, and I mean all the prerogatives and perquisites that go with manhood, including drinking. And uh, I was with a crowd that uh, was 18, 19, 20, 21. And by the time I was 15, uh, I was 
in any world uh, an accomplished social drinker. I came at the age of 16 back home to a prep school and found that uh, my contemporaries, my fellow American contemporaries, were callow youths. Uh, they didn't know what life was. And I found myself alone and, and moving with uh, grown-ups and going down to Baltimore, which then and still today was a pretty wide-open town and enjoying the nightlife. In college, uh, I think I had the the uh, honors or prizes as the toughest drinker. I uh, enjoyed this reputation very much. I think it, I thought at that time it proved something. I was a good student, and that seemed to balance things up. Now, I want, as I go along, I want to raise little see the, the path of an alcoholic. When does an alcoholic become one? When I was uh, 15 or 16, I forget which, a very close friend of the family said, you know, Alec, there's something about you that is different. When you drink, you are not the same person. You uh, look differently, you act differently, and you think Different. Now, uh, this did not strike me then as uh, peculiar, because uh, after all, when when you drink, you acted differently, and you thought differently, and you certainly uh, did things differently, or did things that you wouldn't do without that drink, and you drank in order to do these things, and so on and so on. But still, this was uh, a signal flag. Because this person said, you know, it is just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You are a totally different person. Not the same person with a few drinks in him. You are a different person. Flag up, down, we'll foul and forget for the time being. Went on to graduate school and into the Foreign Service and down to Latin America. I had always enjoyed my drinking. I took pride, as I said before, in the amounts that uh, I drank and in the fact that I was a controlled drinker. When I got a snootful, it was because I started out to get a snootful. Now, Somewhere along the line, flag two, something else happened. Heretofore, I'd been prone to brag about the amount that I had drunk. Boy, what a bender I was on last night. And in fact, I'd inflate the uh, amount I had consumed. In retrospect, I found that at some point or the other, I began to lie. I either denied I had been out drunk or minimized the amount I had consumed. Flag two. Flag three came very shortly thereafter when the beginnings of these many, many talks that all of us who are alcoholics 
are familiar with and that inevitably begin with the word, Why do you drink so much? Why are you doing this to yourself? Don't you know, the other phrase, that you are hurting yourself? Don't you know that this is no good for you? Don't you know this is no good for the job? Don't you know that this is irresponsible? Don't you know that this hurts your parents? Don't you know that we like this? Why and don't you know and why and don't you know? This is the beginning of a momentum. Flag four, I began to drink alone. I preferred to drink alone because I could drink more, to be perfectly frank, without having to explain. Now, let's stop here a moment and consider this thing called alcoholism, which we know is a progressive disease, and it moves along pretty fast. It was now about ten years that I had been drinking, pretty steadily, pretty heavy. In this ten years, I had reached now this point where the first of several inevitabilities was to happen. Because like the law of gravity, this thing with alcohol, it moves until it is stopped, until it is either ending or unless it is halted, it is arrested. I resigned from the Foreign Service after having smashed a car, my second car, and wound up in Gorgas Hospital in the Canal Zone that uh, some of you may know, with the remnants of <coughs> malaria, dengue fever, maybe dysentery, and having cracked up a car that I had to be taken out of there like a sardine from a sardine can. And so I did the patriotic thing and went into the army. I uh, served in an outfit uh, called the Officer Strategic Services, the OSS, where I met my wife. And after due training of various kinds and intelligence and special operations, uh, guerrilla warfare and sabotage, I went abroad. Now comes flag three. I either was sober or I was drunk. I tried to avoid drinking on duty, but these lines began to shade over a little. <clears throat> and one night, uh, I was, at that time, attached to General Montgomery's headquarters in Belgium at a party. I divulged uh, a plan of utmost uh, sensitivity. I was absolutely stoned. It involved uh, the most intricate and complex and sophisticated uh, maneuver to destroy the Nazis that had been devised by man. Uh, most of the guests uh, present were British officers of high rank. 
On the way home from the party, I demolished the vehicle that I was driving in, which vehicle I had stolen from my commanding officer, a British general, and left it where it was found. The MPs traced it in no time flat, and I appeared before said general. Now, the matter that I had divulged uh, would not really have changed the course of the war, because, you see, it had sprung full-blown out of a bottle of Doors blended scotch whiskey and a combination of my mind, and the whole thing hinged on a hero who was I. I am sure that none of you have ever had the experience of casting yourselves in a heroic light while under stimulation, but uh, there you were. But flag five or whatever it was, this, this general could have just court-martialed the hell out of me, and, and that would have been the end. He could have had me shot. I don't know what. But he did. He said, Alec, you are different than other people. He was a very wise general. He was the youngest brigadier in the British Army, and he was uh, Montgomery's G2. He'd been with Montgomery throughout Africa. And he said, why you are different than other people, I don't know. But alcohol affects you in a different way than it does other people. It destroys you. You, I am not condemning. Says that I know that you are not responsible yourself for whatever it is that you have, but you have something that is not your fault and that... Uh, if you drink, that uh, this, this evil force is released and it will destroy you if I am a judge of men. And he sent me back off to my parent org organization. He said, I hope within the next few years that you find the solution, for otherwise God help you. So I went to my parent organization the officer who received me with the letter from General Williams didn't think this was so bad to get uh, sort of get the British general's staff in Brussels shook up for an American Irishman was not a particular sin. That's the only reason I got by. But from there on in begins a new story, a consciousness on my part that there is something wrong, and that probably alcohol was it. Now, as far back as 1941, when Jack Alexander's article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, I was in Bogota, Colombia, driving to the Saturday Evening Post, and I remember very vividly when I opened to that page. And I read a few paragraphs, and I threw the magazine away. I made sure the magazine was destroyed. Now, is this a normal action of a normal person? If you don't like a magazine article, you don't read it. Leave the magazine be. You don't go and destroy it or hide it from yourself. 
And this kept coming back to me from time to time. The end of the war, after VE Day, I went to uh, the psychiatrist of our organization and told him that I was worried about my drinking. And he said, my boy, what have you been drinking? I said, been mostly German wine. And he says, my boy, that gives you worms in the brain. Are you trying to buck for a Section 8? And I said, no, sir. He says, lay off the wine and stay with the whiskey and you'll be all right. <laughs> Which comforted me. It comforted me greatly. But when I came home, and uh, returned to civilian life and into the academic profession, as it turned out, I began the search, the search that can never be ended if you look for it on the, long, on the wrong road. Now, this search was to last for almost four years, until 1949. And what then happened, again, repeat that this is a progressive disease, is not funny. Some of the things that uh, I would tell that still embarrass Jane, that under some circumstances embarrass me, would elicit laughter, but it is the laughter of sympathy and understanding. But it, none of it is funny. This disease, as we know, affects the body, the mind, and the soul. And it is a terrible thing and, in my humble opinion, one of the most dreadful things on earth that can happen to man. For there is nothing noble about your suffering. There is so little kindness. There is so little sympathy. There is so little understanding. And one builds up this life of defense, this life of trying to hide something of which one is so deeply ashamed. And I ask every one of you who is an alcoholic here tonight to think back on some of the talks that <coughs> you had had with your wife or whoever on these very things that I've tried to indicate before, those sentences that begin with why and those sentences that begin with don't you know, and ask you, did you feel good about it? Did you feel happy about it? Weren't you ashamed as I was ashamed? And this is only the beginning. This is perhaps the least part of it. And the physical part of which you are familiar in some cases as victims and as physicians is no fun. It is worse than I think I as a patient would ever communicate to a doctor because I was ashamed. I didn't want him to know how bad it was. It meant suffering and solitude and aloneness. Because I was ashamed that my wife would find out. And so when I got the dry heaves and the small convulsion, I went into the bathroom, as so many of us did, and wrapped my face up with a towel and lay on the floor and tried to be quiet. 
and if you've had them, you know it. It's not easy to be quiet. And that, my friends, takes guts. So that the wife wouldn't hear. And you try to be quiet so that your head doesn't hit the ground. That you don't make any noise. But that isn't the worst part. By far. No, that's not the worst part. By far, because the thing progresses. Destroys. It's a terrible destroyer. And then, as we go down, pulled by this force over which we have no control, and we have lost our place in society, even if we occupy it in some physical way, are holding down some job, but we have parted away from our fellow man, and as a social creature, this is a hard thing to have happened to us. It is a terrible thing. It is more than a blow to one's pride. As it happened to me when a classmate and friend went to the other side of the street to avoid meeting me. It is more than a blow of, to pride. It is more than humiliation. It is this feeling that you have been pushed out from society by your fellow man. And then there is, is more to come, and most of us are familiar with these things, the fears, and then the panic. It's one thing to be afraid of the telephone call. It's another thing to be afraid of driving the car or going across the street, or any of these other purely mechanic, mechanical action that we suddenly become afraid. This other thing that I speak of is the panic, the fear, the total fear, the utter desperation. But that is not the worst. It is sufficient to itself, but it is not the word. Now, I don't know how it had happened to any of you or how it happened to others, but the feeling of being abandoned by God, if you believe in God. Now, somewhere in the gospel, forget which one, this said, that hell is where Christ is not. And that is where I was, or where I thought I was. And then when you have reached the end, although mechanically one continues to live, the creature, the body, continues to exist. But it seems that the soul is destroyed, is gone. That is the end. There is no loneliness. There is nothing that can compare with this. But one goes on. And so did I. I finished in the academic profession 
and uh, I applied for a position in one of the two most sensitive agencies of the government. And because of uh, my past record and the OSS, Alec was a hell of a good guy as long as he didn't drink, you know, that sort of thing. I was offered the job. And this, my friends, was it. This was the time. This was the moment that I had been talking about for years. The result of all the analysis, because I had analyzed myself. For a whole year, I kept a graph, a neat graph on proper graph paper, in which every day I entered my emotional state and the amount of alcohol I consumed. I drew the curve day by day, week after week. And it was a fascinating, weaving line. I found that I drank when I was happy. found that I drank when I was sad. I found I drank when I didn't give a damn. But I missed one thing because this was a chronological record that the volume of my intake increased precipitously after I had taken the first drink. There it was, demonstrated, and I could not see it. But to come back, I was accepted, and this was a time when I would drink no more. All the other times, I had been fooling myself. Admitted, I had been fooling myself. But this was really the time, with no exception. This was it. I went on the way. I stayed sober. Until I got the official letter of notification. And on that day, a strange restlessness overcame me. One that perhaps Jane, who was so familiar with it, probably noticed, but was powerless to do anything about. The thing that uh, Jack London in his book, The Call of the Wolf, or Cry of the Wolf, whatever the hell it is, describes so well, you pace about, you can't do anything, you can't read, you can't look at TV, you can't listen to the radio, you can't talk, go for a walk, walk isn't good enough, go downtown to a movie. And I couldn't stand the movie, so I went next door and had a couple of beers, two beers. One week later, the examining physician at CIA told me that uh, he could not uh, certify me for a domestic position. He certainly could not certify me for a foreign position, and he'd be goddamned if he'd certify me for a position in hell. You, he said, are a drunken bum. And I was a drunken bum. I don't know if it was that night or the subsequent night or the night or the night thereafter, but 
Then there came the moment of truth when finally I saw truth. And the truth was very simple. That this had always happened before. That there had never been any exception. In all these years, I had been lying to myself and others. All these protestations that Things would be different where indeed good protestations and indeed things were different, but indeed there were things that turned out for the worst. But that inevitably, once I had started drinking, I had never stopped until I was physically incapable of drinking anymore. And whether it took months or whether it took weeks or whether it took days, this was it. And I was powerless to do anything about it. I don't know if any of you ever have been swimming and had a cramp or something and felt you were drowned or maybe actually had drowned or in the process of drowning. If you'd really drowned, you wouldn't be here. But this is exactly what I Exactly. And I would go under, I'd come up, I'd fought like I never had fought in my life. All the tricks that I had learned over all these years of getting sober quick, of straightening myself out quick, drinking over the hump to get sober, coffee until it came out of the ears, all this total pottage of my experience could do nothing. And indeed, it had really never done anything before. And there was nothing I could do about it. And it had to run its course. Jane was there with me. And I fought each day. It was a losing battle. Because it was a battle I could not win. I could never win. Under the circumstances that I was fighting it under. Under the terms that I was fighting it under. So then, the end came, as it always had. And I reached the point of utter saturation. and couldn't go on anymore physically. And then I arose from my bed and ran, not walked, to Alcoholics Anonymous, to AA. You all know the story of the prodigal son. When I walked into the doors of that meeting house in South Arlington, Virginia, this was the return of the prodigal son. I had risen from my slough of despond, and I was met with love. There was no fatted calf killed for the occasion. There was no golden garment brought out for the occasion for AA does not work this way. But they came out, they came forward to meet me, and they raised me from my knees and brought me in. And they led me to no more than a long table with a coffee urn and people. And then I knew that I was home. Now, if you can 
picture, say, a, a uh, vessel, a ship, say, a motor ship, that has uh, suffered a terrible storm at sea. Its uh, power is completely destroyed. Its rudder is gone. It has no control over its movement. It has no control over ever anything. And think of the miracle that it would take to move that vessel from the stormy sea into a deep, quiet, and safe harbor. Not only that, but a harbor where they had exactly everything that was needed to rebuild that ship. And that is a miracle that happened to me. It is a miracle that happens to everyone here in this room and everywhere else to the person who comes to AA with an open heart, as open a mind as he or she can have, and seeks sobriety more than anything else. So they gave me this program, this remarkable thing. And what is remarkable about it? It is not a statement of doctrine. It is not a charter of an organization. It is not a creed. It is the distillation of the human experience of people like myself who are alcoholic and who found the way out, who found a thing that works. And they have described for me exactly what they did, literally step by step, to arrive back where they were well well in their body, well in their mind, and well in their soul. And that's not all. Within this blueprint, they mention the tools that are needed in this step. Self-analysis tools. You know the steps. If you don't, learn a little about them. But they describe the tools and they describe the method and the whole thing is laid out. Like a do-it-yourself kit, step one, two, three, four, five, etc. At the end, you have, if you're smart and the blueprint ain't too stupid, most of them are, the object that you're trying to build. But this is not such an object. What you're trying to build is yourself. And this, as I've said, is actual experience. It's not Hypothesis it is not theory. It is actually what happened. Proved not by a hundred people or a thousand people or ten thousand people, but over in the hundreds of thousands of people who have done this over and over and over again, year in, year out. And it has proved itself year in and year out and year in and year out. And a number becomes legion. Now these alcoholics are indeed members of a wise people. They have known the worst of life. In the totality of our membership, there is no sin, there is no crime, 
there is nothing that is the most despicable thing that could be thought of that has not been committed by one or more of us. There is no drag so deep or so bitter that it hasn't been tasted, that it hasn't been consumed by one or more of us. And beyond that you have, there is no goodness, no kindness, no charity, no tolerance, no love greater than that exhibited practice by many of them. You bring these two things together and you have tremendous wisdom. And so these wise people who were like I, who am like I, who are my brothers and my sisters, they, as I said, lifted me from my knees and taught me how to walk again. They explained to me the tools, the instruments, through which someday, maybe, I could become well. And maybe, if God so granted, other things would be all right too. But sobriety, if I worked at it, I could get. It was within reach, was a possibility, it was something that I could do because they too had done it. And so I learned. I learned the law of compensation that for no matter what tragedy or sorrow might occur to me, there is a reward, not only in the hereafter to which I as a Christian aspire, but here and now, in this life. Something that I cannot foresee now. Something that I may not even recognize or understand when it does come. But there is balance. Because, and this was taught to me too, no cross is ever given to man too heavy for him to carry. It may seem so. It may seem impossible. But there is always help if one will only ask. In due time, I became physically well again in a medical sense of the term. I could eat well. I could digest normally and a few other things. In due time, my mind again began to function somewhat more normally because in the past, uh, even in most concentrated sober study, I found that I could not retain things anymore. I work like hell all night and you can't remember a damn thing in the morning. That's frightening. And in time, I became well in my soul. It was not easy. No one ever said it would be easy. No one ever today would ever say it easy. It's pretty damn hard. And it seemed so slow because I was impatient. I was so eager. I wanted these things. I wanted these benefits. And they seemed to come so slow and everything possible went wrong. I couldn't find a job. By this time, I was unemployable. 
I was always specialized as an intelligence expert in foreign affairs. You can't get a drugstore clerk joke a job, they laugh at you. 123 job applications in three months. And then I wound up as a Christmas temporary in a post office, you know, helping to sort the Christmas mail. I was fired at 3 a.m. on uh, Christmas Eve morn. They fired all of us Christmas temporaries and had to wait five hours for the first bus home. And that morning, my oldest son, who could walk, one of the great graces that have been given me is that my children have never seen me drunk. My oldest boy was two and a half when I came in. He and I walked to an abandoned field, and with a penknife, I cut a little Virginia scrub pine and a few branches to fatten it out, and that was our Christmas tree. This isn't close to Christmas time, but I can tell you that was the most beautiful Christmas that we have ever had in our lives, and the most beautiful Christmas that I think I ever will have in my life. There was nothing, and there was everything. And in due course, all these other things straightened themselves out, as my friend had said they might. And where there was disorder, order began to reign. And where there was confusion, clarity began to appear. And I could breathe easy. And I could feel calm. And I'm afraid that only alcoholics here can fully understand what I mean when I say what joy it is to breathe easy and feel calm. And about two years later, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had gotten back into the government by a series of uh, these fantastic and unbelievable coincidences that happened in AA. And I'd like to think of it as a miracle. In Albuquerque, New Mexico in a bar with uh, a group of former prisoners of war. They had their drinks and I had my Coca-Cola. And I was to speak that night and I went up a little earlier and washed and changed. Then it hit me that here I had been for two hours in the bar with a bunch of of, uh, fine fellow veterans, rough, tough guys, they, they'd been knocking the stuff down, and I'd been knocking my cokes down, and they hadn't thought anything about it, and the bartender hadn't thought any about it, and I hadn't thought anything about it. It had become a normal thing for me not to drink anymore or to think about it anymore. I had secured that which some of us call my release, call our release. Now, I can go on and on, but I shan't. I found that we are promised such a thing as serenity and peace of mind, and I found that it came never when I expected it. The time when I thought it would be impossible was a time of what appeared to be great impending tragedy. I thought would be the most, the the greatest tragedy in my life. And I did everything that I humanly could do 
And then I found that I was at peace, that I was serene, that I was afraid no more, that I didn't worry anymore, that I had been able to resign my will completely to that of God as I understand him, and I found myself taken care of. And I found so many things, because all the things you see that I had been listening to and meetings that people were telling about were happening to me, so I no longer had to believe as an article of faith. This came natural now to me because it was a matter of my own experience that happened to me. And I found understanding as to why the God to whom I had prayed to so often had seemingly denied me all those times. I found the answer my own children, my youngest son. One time when he was in the Cub Scouts, the thing that he wanted most was a knife because his brother had gotten one of these Boy Scout knives. I told him he couldn't have it. And uh, most of you have children and you know how persistent they can be and how earnest they can be and, and how firm they can be. And how hard they can be on you as a parent and accuse you of not loving him. You hate me. And if you loved me, you would give me that knife. And you see, I didn't give him that knife not because I hated him. On the contrary, I didn't give him that knife because I loved him, because I knew if I gave it to him, he would hurt himself with it. And that I had always been answered in the things that were good for me and I'd always been denied the things that were bad and that the final answer came to me at the time and only at the time when I was ripe to receive it. That moment of truth when I could see what had always happened, that there was an absolute inevitability that once I began drinking, there was no end to it until it had run its course. And things indeed go better. And I now am a happy man. Now, there's one other curious thing about this disease called alcoholism. I hope a lot of you in here are doctors. You're thorough experts in this disease. There isn't a damn one of you who can look at me and tell me that I'm an alcoholic right now. You accept it because I say it. But I know that if I took one drink, there would be no need for a doctor to diagnose what I am. A five-year-old child would know that there is a drunk. There's one thing that I shall try and stress in closing, and this is perhaps the only thing that counts. And it summarizes in my mind everything that I have tried to say or that I think all of us tried to say. And that is most important to the person who is new, particularly to the person, the man or the woman whose mind is completely befogged, who is sick in the complete sense of the word still, and cannot grasp much. And that is this works. It is our experience. 
It works. It is a nice thing for me to tell you that it is an emotional thing for me that I am excited in the thought that I am one of those who, like the prodigal son, rose from the land of the dead and returned into the land of the living. It is the most tremendous thing in my life that I can stand before you tonight and say that I am unashamed, that I fear no longer, that I have nothing to hide. And again, those of you who are alcoholics can better understand this than the rest. But this means nothing to the man or woman on or under or aside of that bed. The one thing, and this is the joyful message that we have to carry, and this is the word that the, that we who are alcoholics, those of you who are not and know about it, can carry. And that is, thank God, it works. Thank you. comments to make on remarks made during the meeting so far. One of them, I would like to ask you as physicians that in the course of the years of practice of medicine, how many times have you cured disease? Give this serious thought. I have found in the practice of medicine, years that I have practiced it, that probably 85% of all the diseases of man are not cured. So why should we worry about curing alcoholism? This goes for diabetes, tuberculosis, cancer, all the metabolic diseases. So let's forget that word. Let's help people live with their disturbed physiology, their disturbed personalities. A little more normal lives. There might be some of you took a objection to some of the things mentioned this afternoon by a speaker. And I would like to give you my point of view on that talk. Perhaps you felt the first reaction, a criticism of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's forget that. Because there is no man alive who can criticize alcoholic alarms. But I think the challenge he presented to you 
was the challenge of the responsibility of you as a physician, a recovered alcoholic in the community you live. And I hope that all of you take that challenge back with you to your communities and do more in the interest of the alcoholic outside of our fellowship of AA. I want to thank you, Alex, for being with us and talking with us in the presence of God. May we close the meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Well, it's real simple to get everybody in their seats, and I've about done that. Uh, this, we have a real full program, and at this time, I'll turn the program entirely over to Dave C. from Raleigh. Dave is our delegate to the GSO in New York, and he'll take charge of the program and carry it from here. Dave, if you will, come on up. Thank you, Wade. Now that everybody is comfortably seated, let's all stand and open the meeting with the serenity prayer. God grant me serenity to accept the things that I cannot stand, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I'm a member of the Big Book Group in Raleigh. By the grace of God and because this program works in my life, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol since September 12, 1957, and for this I'm very grateful. It's all for a pleasure and a privilege to be allowed to chair this meeting today, the 21st anniversary of AA in Greensboro. There are a lot of old-timers here today. And due to the time elements involved, we apologize for not being able to recognize each other, but we are glad you're here. And this time, I'd like to call on Ed P., if he will read us the history of AA in Greensboro. Good afternoon. I am Ed Penfield, and I am an alcoholic. I've been asked to read a synopsis, at least, of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous in Greensboro. Alcoholics Anonymous came to Greensboro on Thursday night, June 20th, 1946, when the first meeting was held in the home of William Bill H. Nine persons were present, five from Greensboro and four from out of town. Greensboro was the fourth city in the state to form an AA group. Shelby was first, followed by Charlotte and Winston-Salem. Of the nine persons attending that initial Greensboro meeting, four are still living, four are dead, and the status of the other is unknown. 
Not a person is living in Greensboro today who attended that first AA meeting. A technical exception to this is Phil's widow, who still lives here. It is my understanding that she is with us this afternoon, and we're delighted that she is. But as a non-alcoholic, she did not sit in on the meeting. Shortly before this, Bill had spent a period of time in a recovery home in Winston-Salem. While there, he heard of AA and attended some meetings in the Twin Cities. It was through his efforts that AAs from Winston-Salem and Charlotte came to Greensboro that night in June 1946 and launched the Alcoholics Anonymous movement here. But for the thoughtfulness of Bill and his widow, the real history of the beginning of AA here might not be known today. Bill had a little black book and jotted down in AA style the names of the nine present. After his death, his widow preserved the little black notebook and made it available when decision was made to write this history. For that first meeting, Charlie B., now of Asheville, Cy McPhee, who was from South Carolina but was living in the Twin City at that time, and Hughes M. Red R. came over from Winston-Salem. From Charlotte came the man who probably first brought AA to North Carolina when he came down from New Jersey, Dave R., who now lives in Richmond, Virginia. On the local scene, Bill had invited a number of acquaintances, but only four showed up. The others stayed away, fearing Bill was going to read them the riot act about their drinking. Of those who did come, one did not know he had been to the meeting until three days later. <laughs> he came fortified for the occasion. From Greensboro, in addition to Bill, there were Lyman S., now Roanoke, Virginia, Hugh, or Hubert S., now Columbia, South Carolina, and Doc B. and J.C. McDee, both now deceased. Hughes R. of Winston-Salem also is deceased, and the status of Cy McPhee is unknown. Bill H., the Greensboro founder, died in November of 1950. Secrecy surrounded that first meeting. A talk was heard, the speaker probably being Dave R. The collection totaled $9. Thanks again to Bill's little black notebook. It was decided to meet at the YMCA, since regular meetings in a home would attract unwanted attention. The Y was able to provide space on Tuesday night. These Tuesday night meetings have continued since, making Central's Tuesday night the original meeting for Greensboro. Bill and the small group gathered around him at a rough time, trying to convince other drunks to give AA a try, as they had no clear explanation of why it worked or proof that it would work. Progress was slow but sure. Some came once or twice, then stumbled back into the gutter. Of these, some came back to try again and succeed. Others did not. At the end of the first year, total membership probably did not exceed 20 irregularly attending AA. These included such old-timers as Bill H., of course, Robert Bob F., J.C. Big Mac McD., Walter T., Red B., George S., Curly K. of Liberty, 
Howard W., Cecil B., Gordon L., Bill M., Howard D., Henry S., Pop C., W. T. Tom N., Fred P., and Fuel F. There may have been other early birds, but the passing of time is Jim's memory. Anonymity was really stressed in those days. Some heard of AA and wanted to attend, but had difficulty in even learning where the meetings were held, much less who were members. At that time, the public at large knew little about AA and cared less. To them, it was just another bunch of drunks getting together to raise hell at one spot instead of spreading it around the city at this beer joint or that bootlegger's house. It just didn't raise a lowly drunk standing in the community to have his name connected with AA at that time. Members and invited guests and some who were brought listened to out-of-town speakers. They put in the collection plate what they could, paying their own way and not seeking outside help. Members had little way of selling their new life, new way of life to the public. Few persons would really believe that they had quit drinking. Their public relations policy then, as now, was based on attraction rather than promotion. By constantly appearing in public sober, they did more to impress those who knew them than all the words the once hopeless drunk could muster. And people began to be sold on the fact that something was happening in Greensboro drinking circles. The group met at the Y for about nine months and then moved to 322 and a half South Davies Street to the third floor of the old Odell Hardware Company building, remaining there until September 1949. While there, a Sunday night discussion unit was formed, along with the Friday night meeting. These were the units of the central group. Greensboro now had three meetings a week, with the Friday night session open to the public. Meanwhile, the wives of AA members had been busy, and on April 10, 1949, the auxiliary to the Greensboro AA was formed. After first meeting in Palms, they moved to St. Andrew's Episcopal Church on West Market Street. This preceded the founding of Al-Anon family groups, which are now spread throughout the world. The central AA group formed the Al-Anon Club upon moving to 312 Church Street, in September 1949. The auxiliary moved in with Central at the club and has met in the club room since that time. The club moved to 723 Chestnut Street in November of 1957, remaining there until the end of September 1959 when they acquired rooms at 315 and a half North Green Street. On August 1st, 1966, the club moved to larger quarters at 231 and North Green Street, where it still holds forth. Meanwhile, AA was growing, and the first women had come into the membership. Among the earlier ones were Doris P., Evelyn H., Louise C., and Judy H. Eventually, some members left Central to form the Fisher Park Group. They met in the old Charlie Hudson home on Green Street, where the First Presbyterian Church Sunday School building now stands. They moved into this building when it was completed, having met in a house across the street while construction was in progress. The rejuvenated group still meets there. 
The Dogwood Group next was formed. Initial meetings were held in a home in Starmouth before moving to First Moravian Church on Elam Avenue. Then came the O'Henry Group at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church on West Fisher Avenue. By this time, the citizens of Greensboro were no longer taking Alcoholics Anonymous lightly. Respect for AA was growing at a rapid rate. Other groups sprang up, some falling by the wayside or merging with stronger units. Today, there is a meeting every night in the week, with two on Tuesday, two on Friday, and three on Saturday. Central discussion meets on Sunday night, O'Henry on Monday night, open door group at Grace Methodist Church and Central on Tuesday night, Fisher Park on Wednesday night, Dogwood on Thursday night, Lawndale Group at St. Francis Episcopal Church and Central on Friday night, and the Young People's or Pepsi Group at First Baptist Church, Glenwood Group at St. Paul Presbyterian Church, and the newest of the lot, Starmont Group at Starmont Presbyterian Church on Saturday night. All groups meet at 8 p.m. Some meetings are open to the public, others are closed. There is an Alamon family group meeting at Presbyterian Church of the Covenant on Tuesday night. This was formed in 1954 and is in addition to the AA Auxiliary, which meets on Wednesday night at the Alamon Club. An Alateen group was formed in 1961 and meets at First Presbyterian Church on Tuesday night. In February of 1960, the various groups of the city formed the Intergroup Council. This is composed of representatives from each group and serves to coordinate AA activities in the city. Intergroup Council provides an AA telephone answering service. The alcoholic who cries for help day or night can get the help he needs by dialing the number listed in the telephone book under Alcoholics Anonymous. The call will be relayed to an AA member who will go to the address and try to help the sufferer. This help will be from one who understands what the sick man or woman is going through because he has traveled that same road, suffered the same agony and misery and loneliness. Those who come to AA need never be lonely again. This is the work that is being done to rehabilitate alcoholics in the city of Greensboro by the alcoholics themselves and at no cost to the taxpayers or anybody else. Hundreds of citizens have been and are being restored to a normal place in society through the AA program. They are the ones who honestly want sobriety and who thoroughly follow the AA path. So this is the history of the first 21 years of AA in Greensboro. In reality, it is a prologue, for new history is made daily in Greensboro as recovered, never-cured alcoholics carry the message of hope to unfortunates who still suffer and want to do something about their drinking problem. Thank you.
you, Ed, very much.